It all started with the death of a millionaire. In July of 2009, a 29-year-old woman breaks down and tells her boyfriend about a man called Sture. She had sold sex to him, but he had violated her numerous times, making her do things that she didn't want to. He had also pimped her out to other men against her own will, sometimes for group sex, which he himself would participate in. When her boyfriend hears her story, he is overcome with rage. He wants to teach Stura a lesson, and at the same time warn him to never come near his girlfriend again. Together, they decide that they both will get revenge on him for what he has done to her. They come up with a plan, and on the 27th of July, the woman calls Sture, saying that she has an underage girl at a flat who is available for sex, if he is interested. He likes what he hears, and drives over to the flat to meet the woman and the girl. But when he arrives, he quickly realizes that he has been lured there under false pretenses. Instead of the underage girl he was promised, he is met by the woman, her mother, and a very angry boyfriend. During the next two hours in the flat, Sture is badly beaten. His uthra is ruptured and his testicles are crushed. The beating comes to a climax with Sture falling from the balcony. It is never proven that the boyfriend, or anyone else in the apartment for that matter, actually pushed him off the balcony. But regardless, he dies on impact from the 12 meter fall. When the police begin their investigation into Sture's death, they would never believe where it would take them. The results of the case would send shockwaves through Sweden, the country's biggest scandal in recent years. This is Nordic True Crime. Sture was a very wealthy man who lived in an affluent area in a suburb of Stockholm. He did, however, have a secret interest. An interest that involved buying sex from young girls. His preference was violent group sex. Specifically, where many men were having rough sex 
with just one girl. To the police, it seemed like Sture was a ringleader of a prostitution ring, so they started to dig deeper and expose whoever else was buying sex from this organization. They searched his long list of contacts on his mobile phone. The messages from the different men are very raw and explicit. They describe the young girls as slaves that they want to humiliate and discipline, among other things. Soon, the investigators comes across one number that have been both sending and receiving text messages. The police manage to verify who the number belongs to, a girl called Ulrika. They bring Ulrika into the police station for questioning. Ulrika explains that she had gotten into contact with a girl via the internet and they had been chatting for some time, meeting up in town for coffee. The girl then tells her about Sture. She said that she sometimes sold sex to him and that she made some good money out of it. Some time later, Ulrika agrees with her friend that she will come along to a hotel to meet Sture. He convinces her to start selling her body for sex. At this time, Ulrika is just 14 years old. During the next four years, she will meet up with Sture about 30 times. Most of the time they meet, they are not alone. It's more often than not numerous men there having sex with her at the same time. During these sessions, Ulrika is blindfolded so that she can't see the men. One day in January of 2009, Sture calls her, telling her to come to one of his rented apartments to have sex with him and another man. When she gets there, she finds Sture sitting in the apartment together with another older man. Suddenly, the man attacks her, forcing her down on the bed. Sture is just calmly watching and does nothing to stop the man or to help Ulrika. She screams and cries, begging him to stop, but he continues with the attack and rape. The whole time, he is calling her a whore and a slut and completely disregards her pleas for him to stop. After 40 minutes, the man is finally satisfied and Ulrike leaves the apartment, distraught and terrified. She tells the police that the man who was raping her was a police officer, which she had found out after seeing him one day in a newspaper. After going through the newspaper archives, 
The police finally find the article Ulrika had previously seen. Ulrika confirms that this is the man. The detectives are left dumbfounded. The man being interviewed in the newspaper was no other than the former county police chief and former principal of the police academy, Göran Lindberg, a man who throughout most of his career had been campaigning and fighting for women's rights, speaking out against male violence on women, sexual harassment, and the importance of both ethics and morality. At the beginning of the 1990s, the people of Sweden's trust in the police force was at an all-time low. Their success rate in convictions was low, and people just didn't have faith in them any longer. Something needed to change, and when the government was looking for a new, modern-thinking principle for the police academy, Göran Lindberg caught their eye. Göran was born in 1946. His dad was an army reserve and principal of a high school. His mother worked as a domestic science teacher. The family lived an isolated life, and Göran never brought home any friends to the apartment. He says that his upbringing was both firm and strict, which didn't prepare him for the real world. In 1975, Göran finishes his law degree under the police chief's education, and at the beginning of 1980, his wife gets him interested in women's rights, as she herself is a feminist. He gets involved within feminism and begins to fight for women's equal rights on a whole, but more specifically within the workplace. His decision doesn't go down well amongst his colleagues. At that time, 9 out of 10 police officers were male, and the accepted workplace jargon was both misogynistic and sexist. For a male police officer to get involved with feminist issues raised a few eyebrows back then, to say the least. He was mocked and taunted and was given a nickname, Captain Klenning, which translates in English as Captain Skirt or Captain Dress. Göran said he was proud to be given this nickname, meaning that it meant his work had already had some effect and didn't merely go by unnoticed. In 1989, due to his hard work for female equality, he was awarded with the very prestigious and honorable position of becoming principal of the police academy, which he gladly accepted. 
During this time, his father passes away and Joran splits from his wife, later getting divorced. He is a bit of an eccentric, but very well liked as a principal of the academy. After his father passes away, he inherits a farm which includes a whole herd of sheep. He brings the herd to the grounds surrounding the police academy in order to let them graze. He also takes photographs of the sheep, making them into postcards with the heading Regards from the Police Academy. This was considered to be very odd indeed, an example of his eccentricity, which resulted in very mixed reactions. At the time Joram became principal, the academy was tainted by its heavy macho culture and extreme sexism. It all culminates during an initiation party for the new recruits, which got wildly out of control. The female recruits claim that they were groped by their male colleagues during the party and are even blindfolded, pinned down, and get their underwear torn off by their senior male colleagues. The newspapers get hold of this, and it becomes front-page news all over Sweden. Of course, this looks very bad for the police force, and the principal of the school, Jöran Lindberg, holds a very strong farm-related lecture about how absolutely unacceptable this sort of behavior is. It was disgraceful for any workplace to behave in this manner, let alone the police. He puts a stop to all future initiation parties and also files an official report against the recruits who had been molesting their female colleagues. During the next eight years that he is the principal, he would make some big changes, specifically in regards to ethics and morality. This would in turn make more females want to become police officers. In 1997, Göran would become the county police chief in Uppsala, one of the biggest police districts in Sweden. He continues to push for the same things as he did when he was the principal of the police academy, with the importance of morality and ethics, as well as women's rights at the forefront of his policies. During one of his speeches, he explains how unacceptable it is that women are harassed and ridiculed to an extent that they feel invisible. They are spoken to in a very condescending tone, often called darling, and other degrading names in the workplace. He showed terrible statistics that violence against women hadn't decreased in Sweden in a long time, and he also criticized the fact 
that there were so few female bosses in high positions in the business world. However, it doesn't take long before his relationship with his colleagues begins to turn sour. They think Göran is just trying to get some airtime in the media and that he doesn't really care about solving crimes. They think it's just all about Göran's image, that he is only pushing for things that will give him attention in the media. They try to get him replaced numerous times, but Göran manages to make it look like they want him gone because he's fighting for modernization of the police force, so he gets the support he needs from the government to carry on his position as police chief. In 2002, he's even voted Man of the Year in Uppsala for all the good work he has done for gender equality. Once during an important meeting at the police headquarters, one officer tells a younger girl to get them all some coffee. Göran stands up saying, but why does she have to do it? Because she's a young woman or... And with those words, he goes and gets everybody coffee. He wanted to prove that he lived by his beliefs. In January of 2007, Göran had been spending thousands of Swedish crowns on a telephone chat line. He goes by different names and claims that he works as a salesperson. His main motive for calling these chat lines is to find girls that he can buy sex from, preferably young girls. One day, he happens to talk to a girl called Anna. She is a 17-year-old girl who at the time lived at a treatment home. She's been held there against her will, and she just wants to get away from there and get back to her family. In Sweden, if a person under 18 years of age is living in an abusive home or showing signs of severe destructive behavior. The social services have the right to place that person in an emergency family home or a treatment center, depending on the person's needs. Anna is feeling sad and desperate, so when Joran says he can help her get out of the treatment home and back to her mom, she pays close attention to what he is telling her. He says that he has contacts who can get her out of there for good. The only thing he wants in return from her is sex. So one night that January, Anna escapes from the treatment home and meets up with Joran, who picks her up in his car. He drives her to a hotel and takes her to his room. Anna gets scared because she sees numerous sex toys lying on the bed, including handcuffs. She tries to run back out of the room, but Joran 
is so much bigger and stronger than her, and he forces her to stay. He binds her, strikes her, and rapes her. Afterwards, he drives her back to the street where he picked her up. Before dropping her off, he warns her not to tell anybody about what has just happened. He then gives her some money and drives off. Anna throws the money away and calls her friend, distraught and in tears, telling her what happened. The friend calls the police and Anna is taken to the hospital where her injuries are assessed, documented and treated. A police report is filed, but the case is later dropped due to a lack of evidence and Göran is never found. At around this time, he is hired as a guest speaker at multiple events where he, again, speaks about ethics, respect, and the importance of human value. He also speaks out against male violence on women, even saying, it could be anyone, you never know. It's not clear when or why Joran started to bisect, but his behavior seems to escalate rapidly. He sometimes would call and talk for hours on the telephone chat line. It was there that he started to organize the group sex meetings with numerous men and one girl, but he also arranged one-on-one -on -one meetings. He always brought his black bag with him, which contained a blindfold, gag ball with a leash, leather whips, handcuffs, leather straps, and vibrators. He wants to carry out roleplay with an incestual theme, such as daddy-daughter sex, and he is on the lookout for very young girls. Some girls even testify about how he forced them to have sex with other men against their will, whilst spitting in their faces, calling them sluts and whores. The same time as he was forcing girls to do this, he's also holding speeches on gender equality for schoolchildren. When the police find out that Joran is involved in the prostitution ring, they decide to be very careful with their investigation. Since he had held such high positions within the police, the investigation team are unsure who to trust because they don't know how far Joran's contacts spread within the organization. They decide to only include a very small group of people who must work under strict confidentiality to avoid any leaks that could jeopardize their findings. Since the death of the millionaire pimp made headlines all over Sweden, Göran must now realize that he could be in danger of being implicated in an investigation since his mobile phone number 
can be found in the dead man's contact list. It is a prepaid burner phone, but it's still possible to trace back to Göran. So investigators believe that this will probably mean that Göran will more than likely lay low for a while, at least until things calm down. But unbelievably, he does the opposite. He continues with his double life, touring the country as an expert guest speaker on gender equality, at the same time desperately trying to arrange sex meetups with young girls. His sexual behavior escalates, getting more sadistic meet after meet. He also organizes more and more group sex events. The police tap Jöran's mobile phone and also begin to survey his every move. On the 25th of December, the investigation team carry out a search of Jöran's office at the police headquarters. It's obvious that the cleaners have not been allowed into the room in a long time because both the floor and other surfaces are very dusty. It soon becomes clear why Nöran didn't want anybody entering his office. Unbelievably, the trash can is filled with empty boxes of Viagra and numerous notes with contact details for prostitutes and sex buyers are scattered over his desk. Detectives also find the black bag containing his sex equipment for want of a better word. They photograph their findings and then leave the room exactly as they found it. They need more evidence before they can arrest him. Göran seems to be losing complete control of his behavior and he seems to be totally oblivious to the fact that his secret life might have been uncovered to the point that makes it seem like he doesn't even care any longer. On one occasion, he even calls the police dispatcher, asking for directions to an address. An address where he is planning to meet a young girl for sex. It almost feels like he believes he is untouchable, too smart to be found out, so confident in being safe that he is totally unaware that he is being followed. About one month later, Göran arranges to meet up with a girl for sex. Since she is only 14 years old, the police now have to intervene. They follow him throughout the long drive to the location where he's due to meet the young girl. When Jöran makes a stop at the gas station, the police make their move and arrest him. He doesn't seem to be shocked at his arrest, he just mumbles that he hasn't done anything wrong. They find four Viagra pills in his pocket, and in the car they find the black bag 
containing vibrators, whips, handcuffs, and gag ball. The news of the former police chief's arrest sends shockwaves through the entire country. Anna, the girl who was raped by Yaran when she was 17 in 2007, is able to testify in the trial due to a match in DNA from the sample that was gathered at the hospital after her ordeal. The trial of Göran Lindberg begins on the 30th of June 2010. He admits to the charge of buying sex, but nothing else. He explains that he bought sex to try and fill the big empty hole in his life. He is sentenced the 30th of July to six and a half years in prison for several sex offences, including that of rape. He appeals, and the High Court reduced his sentence to six years. After serving just four years, Joran was released on parole in January of 2014. About a year before Joran was arrested, and during the same time that he was the ringleader of the group Six Ring, he was interviewed by the Swedish newspaper Dagens Industri, where he said the following, quote, Gender equality is an effective weapon in the fight to reduce violence in society. When both women and men meet on equal terms, both sexes show their best sides. End quote. 